Welcome to the New Money Review podcast. I'm Paul Amory, editor of New Money Review. On the 28th of February, the US, the European Union and the UK took an unprecedented step in response to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. They froze most of the Russian central bank's $630 billion in foreign currency reserves. In the words of the UK government, this step was aimed at preventing the Central Bank of Russia from deploying its reserves in ways that undermine the impact of sanctions imposed by us and our allies. But there was a portion of the reserves, about one-fifth of them, that could not be touched by sanctions. And that was the $132 billion, at the latest count, held by Russia in the form of gold. Since Russia's gold is kept in vaults within the country, Western powers can't touch it. And even if foreign entities are prevented by sanctions from doing business with Russia these days, in theory the country can still use its gold as it wishes. It will have to find a counterparty behind the scenes in order to do so, but that's not impossible. In this episode of the podcast, I'm joined by John Reed, Chief Market Strategist at the World Gold Council, to talk about this attribute of gold and also how gold is traded, priced and used as an investment asset. Listen in for the next 30 minutes to find out more about this important subject. If you enjoy this episode of the New Money Review podcast, please like it, share it or comment on it. And if you'd like to support us, you can do so using Patreon. Details of how to do so are on the homepage of the website, newmoneyreview.com. John, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Hi, Paul. Thank you very much. Yes. Um, so my name is John Reed. I'm the chief market strategist at the World Gold Council. Uh, I've been in the gold industry for about 35 years. I describe myself as the most boring dinner party guest uh, that you can imagine because I, I know an awful lot about a very tiny area, um, uh, and that's gold. I've been a gold miner. I've been a gold equity analyst. I've been a, a gold commodity strategist, um, a partner at a hedge fund, and for the last five years, I've worked at the World Gold Council. Now, for those of you that haven't heard of the World Gold Council, we are a market development organization um, that's owned by the most important gold mining companies around the world. And our job is to make gold more accessible. Um, And that's gold in all its forms. So whether it's jewelry demand, whether it's investment demand, whether it's central bank purchases, uh, whether it's the gold that's used in technology. So we're an organization that attempts to do this. um, And there's a number of things that we do I'm responsible for research. I'm also responsible for our central bank team and the engagement that they have with the central banks. Um, And I get involved with public policy as well, where we are attempting to influence and lobby countries and regulators uh, to make investors uh, and other users of gold um, make it more easy for them to, to access the gold market. Great. Well, thank you very much for that uh, comprehensive introduction. Now, I know you can't talk about, you know, any forecast for the gold price, but I must point out that when I got in touch with you a few weeks ago to set up the podcast, I was keeping an eye on the gold price and it was bumping around, you know, above and below eighteen hundred dollars, which is about where it was ten years ago. And obviously, since um, since then, there's been a um, you know quite a significant rise to above two thousand dollars as we're per ounce as we're as we're talking. Um, uh, you know, what it, given what's happened in the last few weeks with the Russia-Ukraine war. What, if any, significant demand trends have you seen? What's driving the price rise? Well, in short, it's investment and speculative demand uh, that's driving the gold price higher. 
by the way, if you ever have an idea about doing a blog about gold in the future, as soon as you think about it, give me a shout. It might be a nice uh, leading indicator. But no, investment uh, and speculative uh, buying for gold uh, has been the factor that's been driving it higher. Um, I mean, the gold market's diverse in its demand sources. I mean, about 40% of gold goes into what we describe as consumer demand. So jewelry, uh, about 34%, uh, technology, about 7%. And then there's a chunk of about 42%, I think it is, that goes into investments and speculation. And then the balance of central banks. But they work at different speeds and different strengths, uh, depending on what's going on in the world. So when the price is rising like that, like it is at the moment, so $2,040 announced today, so it's a new 18-month high that we've been hitting all day, it's it's because of investment and speculation. And, and a lot of this is due to um, the crisis that's taking place following the, uh, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Could you talk a bit more about the role of central banks? You mentioned them in your introduction. You know, which central banks have been particularly prominent in the gold market over the last decade or two and why? Yeah, it's... Uh, Interesting history. Um, Central banks were sellers of gold on a net basis right up until the global financial crisis. Um, And those sellers were typically the developed market central banks, most of them European plus Australia, Canada, and a couple more, uh, who'd ended up with a lot of gold at the end of the gold standard. Uh, and it made up a large proportion of their international reserves. So they were selling, um, buying government bonds, obviously paying better interest rates back in those days. When the global financial crisis came along, though, we saw central banks stop selling. uh, And rather, we've seen buying coming through from emerging market central banks who didn't end up with a lot of gold at the end of the gold standard because they had very small reserves. Um, Their foreign exchange reserves have grown massively, particularly since the the Asian financial crisis uh, in the end of the 80s, um, because they realized that if you had... um, if you didn't have big foreign exchange reserves, your currency was vulnerable. So they built up big uh, foreign exchange reserves, but didn't have any gold. And then in the global financial crisis, gold's qualities, not just for individual investors, but also for central banks, for its, its, its properties of diversification, the fact that it's an asset, that it's nobody else's liability. You don't have to rely on uh, on a country uh, being solvent, you own gold. It's uh, that, that that's your issue. It's not anybody else's. So, we've seen diversification um, by lots of emerging market uh, central banks uh, adding gold to their reserves, not vast quantities, um, but uh, maybe but five. Could you give some figures? I mean, in terms sure. of percentage of foreign exchange reserves, which which countries now have got the highest percentage well, of gold the, in their reserves? Yeah, the, the the biggest percentage of reserves still stands with the developed market central banks. So European Union central banks, the US, etc. They have, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50% of their reserves in gold in some cases. The emerging market central banks have much less. Um, and the sort of percentages that we've seen uh, from the buyers, they may be somewhere between 5 and 10% typically. Russia, which was the biggest buyer, um, for over the last 15 years, holds about 20, just over 20% of its international reserves in gold. Uh, and that's pretty much the high end, I'd say, for emerging markets. Whereas China, which has also been buying, uh, sits at maybe 2 3%, somewhere around that level. Right. Let's talk about Russia for, 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 for a minute, because obviously what's going on there is, you know, is, is, is very important. It's historic, probably, and, and, and also very difficult to watch. But I mean, let's talk about those reserves, because I, in the last week, uh, um, 
sanctions on Russia have basically frozen its reserves held in other, let's say, government bonds, in, in dollar bonds, euro-denominated bonds. But the gold, as I understand, a lot of it's actually sitting in Moscow in, in, a, in a vault. So what can Russia do? What, if anything, can Russia do with that gold if it wants to raise money? Well, it's a tricky one um, because sanctions have been leveled against the Central Bank of Russia, as you say, which which means that its international currency reserves or financial reserves are locked up uh, in uh, in the clearing systems of, say, for example, you know, the US dollar or, or, or the euro or whatever. The gold, though, as far as I know, and, and, and I haven't actually checked this, but uh, I've, I've been reliably informed that, that Russia's gold is in Russia. That's not always the case. A lot of countries hold gold at the Bank of England or the Federal Reserve in New York. But on the basis that Russia has been buying gold from its domestic producers, um, I, I'm pretty sure that that gold actually is sitting somewhere in vaults uh, in Russia. So the central bank itself, being sanctioned, can't sell um, you know, with, with, with normal counterparties. So if Russia wants to use that gold, it'll have to put it on a plane, ship it somewhere uh, to somebody that is prepared to buy it. Uh, and that's somebody that's prepared to basically uh, go against sanctions uh, that have been imposed by the European Union, the UK, the US, etc. Okay, but that that gold is 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 in the form of. Do we know what form it's in? Is it in London good delivery bars, or we just don't know what it is? It could be in any form. We don't know. It what could be in any form. It's almost yeah. certain to be in London good delivery bars. There's uh, there are f- six, I think, refineries that until yesterday. Um, were good delivery refineries in the eyes of uh, of the international gold market. Now, the good delivery status for those uh, refineries was suspended uh, yesterday, which was the 7th uh, of, of March. But the way that the, the good delivery system works is that any bars that were produced before that suspension still count as good delivery bars. Right. So, you know, in and for theory, those they, people who don't know what a good delivery bar is, just the standard size and, and weight and, and purity of gold. Yeah, what I describe as the James Bond bars, because we've all okay. seen the film Goldfinger. So they're the big 12 and a half kilos or about 400 ounces in weight. Yeah. And that's typically how central banks uh, hold their gold, not least of which because it's much more storable with big bars of gold. They stack nicely on top of each other in a vault. Okay. So if Russia wanted to do something with its holdings of those bars, it, it would have to do so on a bilateral basis, ship them to, to a counterparty somewhere else, maybe, let's say, China, and then do a deal based on that holding yeah, of gold. And, and, they, and could, they could do yeah. that. Well, they could do that if they can find a counterparty that is prepared to deal with them. Yeah. Um, and they could, at that stage, then sell the gold to that counterparty. Because Russia's got rather a lot of gold, though, um, they, they might not want to sell it. They might use it as collateral against uh, loans or... Uh, or some sort of barter agreement. I mean, okay. it's very unclear, and we're, we're completely into supposition at the moment. There's no yeah. indications that any of that gold has moved around. But talking on, you know, what would be possible or what could happen. Could you talk a bit about what happened in the gold market at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis, when there was a uh, for a few days there was a sort of massive divergence in prices between London traded uh, gold and New York traded gold, and as I understand it, there were there were planes being flown between. London and New York with bars on them to try and iron out the differences. What what caused that and, and how significant was it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was a fascinating time for somebody that's been in the market for a long time uh, to watch it, this un, uh, this play out. I mean, typically what happens is the over-the-counter market or the London gold market centered around vaults in the UK and to a certain extent in vaults in Switzerland as well. 
That's the price that you see on your Bloomberg terminal or your Reuters terminal. So that's the gold price. Um, there's also other other markets around the world, and the one that's relevant here is the COMEX futures market in New York. So that's not a physically settled market typically. It's a it's a, a futures market, and, and very little gold actually goes to delivery. Most contracts are closed out or rolled forward rather than taking physical delivery. So that's meant that the COMEX hasn't really needed to keep much gold in New York because so little of it gets delivered. Um, that allowed um, banks in, in the London market to take positions in COMEX and, and positions uh, in the London market offsetting each other um, to be able to facilitate investments and speculative buying on COMEX. So, the, so the, the speculators would be long COMEX futures, the banks would be short COMEX futures, but the banks would be long gold in the OTC market in, uh, in London. And that all worked fine. And the, and the differential between um, the COMEX price and the, the London price was uh, didn't move around very much and, and was based off uh, interest rate differentials and cost of carry and things like that. So it's a very stable, steady market. Until because of the coronavirus pandemic, a couple of things happened. First of all, it was harder to get gold from the mines to refineries because the mines are located all over the world. The refineries are in more discrete locations. Uh, you've got to get it from A to B. You've got to then run the refineries. Um, uh, and a, a large number of them were located in in, uh, the, in Switzerland by the Italian border when we had the first big outbreak of COVID there. So a lot of those suddenly weren't able to operate at the normal capacity. And that even when you produce the, uh, the bars, you had to at least believe you, you would be able to move it to New York if you needed to. But we shut down 95% of the global airline industry. So suddenly that certainty that if you needed to close that trade through physical deliveries had gone away. And I think what happened is someone panicked and thought, well, we've got these big positions. We may not be able to settle them or we'll close them out. Hmm. And because the market was all the same way, we saw the spread between COMEX and, and London go from its typical 2 or $3 an ounce all the way up to $50 an ounce, I think I saw. Uh, briefly, and that and that fractured the relationship between the larger over-the-counter market and the probably smaller but more active and frenetic COMEX market. So then you had this real dislocation that took place, which took quite a few months to to sort out. And, and the way it was sorted out was by, as you said, finding gold, getting it into its right form, size, bar, particularly. And, uh, and physically shipping it and delivering it into vaults in New York so that it could be delivered against those expiring contracts. Um, so tremendous amount of activity, tremendous amount of interest within the gold market itself. Probably nobody else ever not noticed outside that anything was going on. Uh, but, but is this a, you know, this, these strains obviously were in an unprecedented time, as you mentioned, the, the collapse of air travel caused people to question whether things could be moved around as easily as before. But, you know, given what's going on now with, with sanctions and the, the, the split perhaps uh, in, in the financial markets, is there a chance that some of the gold market trading is going to move, el you know, away from, or more of the gold tra trading is going to move away from, let's say, London, New York, somewhere in Asia or Middle East, or will those centers increase in importance? They have been increasing in importance, particularly in China, um, over the last 20 years. Uh, and that probably continues. Um, but the liquidity and the amount of gold that's available in the London markets and now available in, in, in New York, because they shipped over 
uh, they shipped over something in the region of about 30 million ounces. By, so nearly a thousand tons of gold was shipped into New York, and, and most of that's still there as well. So I, I think I think what we'll see is we'll see fewer assumptions made in the gold market about your ability to move gold and source gold immediately. So more precautionary stocks. I mean, the reason you don't keep gold in New York normally is because it's more expensive and it's not as useful there. Um, you know, the, 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 the bulk of the trade and the physical deliveries of gold that take place take place within the OTC market centered around London. So you don't really need gold in New York, but now you've got it there just in case you do. I, I think the lessons, though, that we saw from the gold market um, should be watched very carefully um, by other uh, commodity traders, particularly with the sort of dislocations that are taking place because of uh, because of sanctions and inability to 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 source uh, metal or grains or potentially energy as well. Uh, in the end, commodities are physical things; they're not just um, there's not just electrons that you can flick around the world with dollar balances or sterling balances on them. You actually, at some times, you need to make that physical delivery to be able to to to, to make the trade. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic, isn't it? Given what's happening and, and given the dislocations we're seeing at the moment in the London nickel market, where they've they've cancelled uh, some trades, as I understand it, uh, and and given some counterparties caught out the chance to to unwind their trades uh, at a at a slower pace. Um, uh, could you talk a bit about the fungibility of gold? Because this is uh, often kind of given as a key key attribute of gold for people who want to use it as a store of value. And I'm particularly interested in the comparison with cryptocurrency and, and Bitcoin because people do call Bitcoin digital gold, um, but its fungibility, as I understand it, is not as good as that of gold. Yeah, I'm not really an expert on crypto cryptocurrencies. I, I've spent a, a reasonable amount of time looking at the performance of them, but in terms of the intrinsic details, I'm, I'm not so much the expert, so I'm not sure about the fungibility there. But the point about gold is it's a physical, tangible asset. Uh, I mean, the gold price I was referring to before that I can see on, on my Bloomberg terminal to the left of you, actually, Paul, watching the, pl the price blast around there, that, that's the, the so-called gold price, the gold price. But it actually is a very specific gold price, as we were talking about before. It's, it's the price of gold in the OTC market uh, in London uh, for, for per ounce for a 400-ounce bar. So that's what's held by central banks. That's the the, the backbone of the of the London uh, precious metals market. But if you go into a shop, there's very few people that could afford um, what would 400 ounces be nowadays. It'd be eight hundred and fifty thousand dollars or whatever. So that's, that, that's a tremendous amount of money. That's why I've done my maths right. I probably no, that's actually more than that. <laughs> yeah, quite a lot more than that. Sorry, that's actually uh, one point uh, one point six million dollars. Yeah, hopefully nobody traded on that price I just gave them. <laughs> um, but uh, so you don't go and buy that as an individual. What you typically would go and buy is a small uh, one ounce coin or or maybe a one ounce bar or maybe a killer bar of gold. Um, so although gold is, you know, it's an element, so it's atomically identical, the physical form does matter. Um, so that's why the refineries come into play, not only to purify the gold that's produced at the mines around the world, but also to take those large bars and to remelt them and to, uh, uh to re-refine them in many cases and turn those into smaller investment bars. Um, so gold is fungible. 
Um, but you often need to transform it from uh, one bar size and quality into another. That's why central banks tend to hold the big bars because they're accepted in the, the wholesale market. Uh, but the refineries, on the other hand, prefer to make the small investment bars because there is a small uh, premium that they can capture from this value-added business. Mm, great. Thank you for explaining that. I heard you say on, a, on a, uh, another recent podcast with ByteTree that uh, only around 10% of investment institutions have uh, and holding in gold, if I've understood it correctly. Uh, what, 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 what's, what's, you know, why is it so low and what do you think is happening there? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that was quite a complicated question I was trying to answer. We've done a lot of survey work, and if you, you survey institutions and you ask them if they have an exposure to gold, the number com comes out quite a bit higher than that 10%. But that's because a lot of them hold, for example, commodity in index investments. Um, and gold is a small component of that, or they may have uh, some gold equities, or they may have a dedicated gold, you know, futures fund that has a bit of gold. The 10% I was referring to is my rough estimate of institutions that hold gold as a strategic asset allocation. So what I mean by that is that they own gold as part of their portfolio and they hold it all the time. Of course, they can sometimes make that position bigger or smaller, depending on what they think is going to happen um, to the economy, but they consider it to be a permanent portfolio position. That's about 10%. Why more don't do so? Well, I think a part of it is history. Part of it is interest rates. When interest rates are high, the opportunity cost of owning gold uh, is high because gold doesn't pay any interest. Um, but similarly, when, when credit risks are high, when people are worried about... Uh, uh, about the, the the solvency of the financial system, um, then gold comes into its own. So with interest rates very low at the moment, with lots of geopolitical tensions going on, you can see the logic why people would want to own gold. We've done a lot of work in the last few years of really tightening up the presentation uh, that we, we use to speak to um, institutions that say why they should own gold. It's because it's been a source of returns and not just during geopolitical crises or periods of inflation or financial meltdowns, etc. But over the long term, since 1971, for example, delivered returns similar to or better than other asset classes. If you look at the diversification benefits of putting gold into a portfolio, over the last 10 or over the last 20 years, having gold in a portfolio, appropriate amounts, probably somewhere around about 5 to 10%, depending on what else is in that portfolio, has increased the risk-adjusted return of that portfolio and, as we're seeing at the moment, helped protect you from drawdowns from what I've been calling over the last couple of years Rumsfeldian events. In other words, those unknown unknowns or those unpredictable yeah. things that come along, like, for example, what's happening at the moment in Ukraine. So yeah. that combination of returns, diversification, and portfolio effect – uh, are the reasons why we think pretty much all institutions should have a strategic allocation to gold. It's our job to get out there and make that case to them. And uh, and that's what we're doing. And we've had some some good successes over the last few years, but there's plenty more work to be done, as you can see from that number. Yeah. What about the retail uh, segment of the market? Are you expecting to see much change there in, in demand for gold? Retail market is uh, is an interesting one. And, and look, there's lots of different gold markets around the world. If you look at China, if you look at India. But if I think about the Western retail investment market for gold, that went through a what appears to be a structural change uh, after the global financial crisis. We saw investors in gold 
stepping or investors stepping up their purchases into gold uh, as a consequence of, of what they had seen uh, in the global financial crisis. And that investment has continued or had continued all the way through uh, up until the coronavirus pandemic, when we saw again, uh, almost like renewed interest uh, to buy more uh, or buy more investors to, to position themselves in physical bars and coins. So the bar and coin market has stayed re- really strong. And to be honest, um, I don't see anything that's likely to change that. I think we are aware now, much more than we were, say, 15 years ago, of the financial risks and of the renewed geopolitical risks um, that, that that face us. And I think that will keep um, uh, investment demand for gold by retail investors to be pretty strong. Yeah, it's, it's now over 50 years since the US uh, government removed the link of the dollar uh, from the, of the dollar to gold, do you think there's any chance in the future of, of a, a country or countries um, relinking their monies to gold? I, I don't think so. Um, I don't think it would be, let's put it this way, it wouldn't be a decision that was taken out of a position of strength. When you link your currency to another currency or to a hard asset like gold, you lose your con- lose control over your monetary policy. You, you don't set interest rates on the basis of what the economy is doing. Uh, you do it basically on uh, setting it high enough to make sure that you have enough gold to b- back the currency that you issue. Uh, it gives you very little ability to react to, um, to economic shocks. So I can't see the rationale for a central bank, which at the moment, like the US or the UK or, um, or, or the Eurozone, um, that they set their own interest rates, they have control over their monetary policy, they're able to, um, uh, to, to, to navigate much more freely. And, and look, there's lots and lots of talk about how you know, the dollar is going to lose its reserve status and it's going to be replaced by another currency. And that, of course, may happen. I mean, although I do remember that uh, the, I think the US economy overtook the UK economy around the turn of the century in 1900. And it was only after the Second World War that that, uh, that sterling was replaced by the US dollar as, as, as the you know, most important reserve currency. And by the way, sterling still is a reserve currency. So even if the dollar continues to lose a bit of ground year by year to other currencies, um, I, I don't think that there's any danger that uh, that the dollar is going to going to completely lose its reserve state, uh, currency status, and more to the point, it wouldn't be just about the dollar. It would have to pretty much every currency would have to lose its reserve uh, status because people lose faith in in so called fiat currencies. And and for all the talk of that, I don't really see much sign of it, to be honest. Right. So gold will remain then as a primarily as a as a safe haven for either for investing institutions or for individuals who want to diversify their wealth and in, in uncertain times. I think that's right. It's a proven asset that's been around for thousands of years as a store of value. And and, and because of its characteristics of performance and and, uh, and diversification, it, it's greatly useful in a portfolio. And, and I think that's going to continue. Yeah. And could you talk a bit about the, you know, the variety of options now available to, to uh, individual investors as far as gold investment products are concerned whether it's you know etfs or sure you know bullion vault types schemes or even gold stable coins yeah i mean and i assume we're talking primarily to a uk audience here 
I, most of the readers and listeners of this are the UK or US, so it's right, for both, both. I mean, th- there's a number of different uh, options, as you've, uh, uh, as you've alluded to. I mean, for most people, buying gold in its physical form uh, tends to be through um, bars and coins, so investment bars of less than a kilogram usually. Um, and coins, typically the the, the Krugerrands, the sovereigns, the uh, um, the U.S. Eagles, etc., that that you'll come across in coin shops, and, and that's certainly a popular option. Uh, many people do it, but you do pay a premium for that. If you go into a coin shop and look to buy uh, a gold coin, you might pay three, four, seven percent perhaps premium to that you know gold price that you can see. Um, and investment bars may be a bit cheaper in premium terms, but they're still, you know, you're still paying a bit more for that. And then you've got to think about where do you store them? Um, have you got a safe deposit box? Have you got a vault at home? Have you, um, you know, and, and, and obviously there's all sorts of implications there. I mean, it's one of the reasons why exchange traded funds, which were physically backed by gold, were developed. And the World Gold Council had a hand in developing these in the early 2000s. So an ETF is a product that trades uh, on a stock market. Uh, whether it's um, the US or, or the UK or Europe, Australia, they're, they're, I think we track about 80 of them now around the world on various different markets. And, and you're buying a share um, who uh, of, a, of a company whose only assets are gold and the only liabilities are the, are the, are the, are the shares or the units that they issue. Um, they have management fees that range from, I think, about 10 basis points per annum are the cheapest up to uh, about 40 basis points, the most expensive. So that that's a, a good choice for people who are looking to diversify a portfolio and actually have share trading accounts. Um, there are other solutions. Um, uh, high net worth clients, richer people could actually you know, open a, a, a bullion account with one of the banks. Uh, you mentioned products like Bullion Vault uh, as well. They cater to, uh, to individual investors. Um, and then you go right up to the to, to the the sort of the the, the more exotic stuff like uh, a futures trading account, uh, which uh, probably more common in the US than the UK. Um, you can also access access gold price performance via spread betting accounts as well. So there are quite a number of ways of doing it. And then finally, uh, I, I should also mention that you can buy gold shares as well. So gold mining companies uh, listed typically uh, various jurisdictions, and there's a number of funds uh, on those around as well. Uh, and they've proved very popular in the past as well. So really, it's it, it's a question of thinking about why you're trying to buy gold. Do you want to pay the premium to have the physical at home you know, yourself? Um, and are you prepared to insure that and take care of it or store it in, in a vault? Do you want the financial exposure that you might get through an ETF uh, as part of a diversified portfolio? Um, or do you want to buy, buy something leveraged with a future, uh, et cetera? So it, it, think about why you're owning it. Think about the costs involved. Think about the, the trading you know, ability, commissions, et cetera. It's a, there's lots of different ways to approach that argument. Great. Thank you for outlining those. Uh, and final question. Um, you, World Gold Council produces a lot of uh, you know, uh, reports and surveys on demand trends across the market. In, in, the, in this sort of volatile time in, and for the remainder of 2022, could you talk about maybe one or two indicators that, are, that, that you're particularly focused on? Yeah, and, and thank you for uh, reminding me that to publicize our website, which is gold.org. Um, which has all the research and data that I've been sort of referring to during the course of this podcast. It's all available for free. Just need to register once and then you're away. Um, so we produce a tremendous amount of research and, and, and insights uh, into the gold market. 
Um, the, the things that uh, I keep a close eye on at the moment, um, I mean, we produce detailed quarterly demand uh, data, which is great to see what's happening over the longer term. But in the short term, um, uh, as things are moving at the moment, I spend a lot of time looking at uh, COMEX futures market positioning. So the, the commitment of traders report that comes out the CFTC once a week, uh, comes out on a Friday for positions up to Tuesday. Um, then on a daily basis, we record the inflows and outflows of, of ETFs. Uh, and that data is available, I think, weekly on our website, although I tweet about it most days when things are moving around like they are at the moment. And, and those two measures really give us a good indication of sentiment towards gold, investor and speculative positioning. The longer term price formation of gold comes very much more from you know the fundamentals of supply and demand. But in the short term, it's very much what investors and speculators are doing. And, and by keeping an eye on those two measures, you can get you can see what's happening, for example, uh, much more frequently. Great. John, thank you very much for taking the time to chat. It's been a very interesting discussion. Thank you very much, Paul. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support our work, you can do so via Patreon. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website. Finally, please join us soon for our next episode.